Welcome back to the Present Fathers podcast. In this episode, our guest is Dallas Alexander. Dallas served in Canada's elite special operations unit called JTF2 and was trained as a sniper, and his team holds the world record for the longest confirmed kill at 3,540 meters. Dallas has now left the military, and his full-time career is a country music artist. You can look him up at dallasalexander.ca or on Instagram. The links for everything is in the description, but why you're going to love this episode most is because he is, one, one of the most genuine and nice people we've ever met and had the opportunity to speak with on the show, but he is a father to four and just gives such practical and sound wisdom in this episode. So without further ado, we are pleased to present to you Mr. Dallas Alexander. Dallas Alexander, welcome to the Present Fathers Podcast. How are you, man? Thanks for having me. I'm doing good. Yeah, okay. I'm pumped. I uh huge fan of your music, love it so much. And uh I'm really pumped to get to pull pull out the lessons from your story. I know you've had a pretty crazy life and a lot of <laughs> seen a lot of things. So I'm really excited to get into your story. So why don't we start? Uh tell us a little bit about your family, how many kids you got, um, and then we'll go into your your background. All right. I've got uh I've got four kids ranging in age from five months to sixteen years old. So again, I got three boys and one girl, and uh, I'm getting to see all the interesting little things they do again that I started to forget about the teenagers when they were growing <laughs> up, you know? Yeah. Busy man. Busy man. Yeah. So um, what, sorry, before we go into your background, why don't you tell everyone what you do full time now, um, and then we'll go through your story. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a musician now. I play, I like to say country inspired music, and I'm a songwriter, so I say country inspired because it is my favorite genre of music, old and new and all, all kinds of subgenres in that. But I don't necessarily sit down and say, I need to write a country song. Mm. Because I'm inspired by it, a lot of it comes out that way. And I love the fiddle, so a lot of it comes out sounding country, but it's open to write or play whenever it comes out. Yeah, man. I really like your style because it's, it, for me, like it's a callback to the older country I grew up listening to as a kid. And so I immediately connected with it, just like, hey, you don't get to hear stuff like this anymore. And yeah, and, uh, the American pop country. Totally. <laughs> mine was the same. Like, we used my dad, you know, we played all the, the Johnny and Waylon and Merle and a lot of even CCR and Steve Earl yeah. and stuff like that. So I got to hear some really good tunes when I was young. Very cool. All right. Well, why don't we start with your your childhood and, and kind of how you grew up in uh, in Canada there? And for those not you know, who haven't picked up the accent yet, he's Canadian. So, uh, despite this yeah. flag, I am good. Yeah. Despite the flag, you're, uh, yeah. Yeah. So I grew up, uh, a tiny little, we call it a Métis settlement and it's sort of the same as like, uh, an Indian reserve in the U S or native American reserve, whatever you guys call it. And it's a small indigenous community. And I, I think it probably topped out at about 300 to 350 people, uh, was kind of max capacity while I was there. And it was just like, it was an amazing childhood because it was, I was so free to just do whatever. Now it's a mix of where we were and, and parenting and stuff, but I just kind of roamed the woods and played outside. And when I wasn't doing that, I was playing hockey. Nice. Yeah. Super Canadian. Very typical (laughs) Canadian story right there. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that's awesome, man. So at what point did you kind of start? like wanting to get out and maybe think the military was the way for you. And just tell us a little bit about kind of your family dynamics growing up and, you know, the yeah, role sure. that your dad played. In so life. like a lot of it was based around, um, like a lot of our, our spare time was, was hockey. 
like our my I played an older brother that played and my sister played. There was only like one year I think that it overlapped that we were all playing. My brother quit playing and then it was kind of but there was a lot of in the winter time it was like my dad would go to work and then he would drive to the nearest town it was roughly 40 45 minutes. Do like the practicing at night, go home and do that again every, you know, few times a week and then weekends were fully games. Um the family dynamic it was I don't know. I, I actually I thought back a lot about this when I became a father. And it was it was a place where I just I always felt, you know, loved and safe and like just things I I just thought that was what everybody had. Do you know what I mean? Like my dad worked hard, but he'd come back and like he was he was with us, he's present whether we were wrestling or you know, he's playing hockey on the street with us, even though he's not a hockey player. Um, you know going walks in the woods and all that stuff like it was and then my mom was at home with us when he was kind of at work and you know we'd be at school in the daytime but it was it was solid like i I thought back like i'm saying when i started having kids a lot about that because it it was such a good time in my memory you know it wasn't like there or at least i don't think there's something held on to an adulthood like some type of resentment or something and you know, I owe a ton to them for that. That's awesome, man. It's good to hear that like your dad played such a big role and, you know, worked really hard. And, uh, yeah. And I find it like not, sorry, not to cut you off, but no, 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 go. it's, uh, it shows how important it is. Cause like we were not rich. Like at one point we lived in the house that he grew up in. There's like no running water, no power. Wow. The outhouse was the toilet and it was like 50 meters behind the house. And I was fucking scared shitless to go use it at night. <laughs> Uh, pardon my language, but I just, it, it made me think like, you know, if, and I never even really noticed that we didn't have money, you know, like they got enough to like get us some type of hockey equipment and get us to the rink in the wintertime. And it just shows like, which one is truly more valuable, you know, like my whole life. I'm like, oh yeah, everything's awesome. I get to run around the forest and this and that. And mom cooks a great dinner. And we just, I thought it was so great. And then I look back and I'm like, we had you know, nothing really. And it just shows which one is more important. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's, it's a good point. Because I think so often, especially as like, you know, dads in the modern era, right? You kind of get caught up in the rat race. Like, oh, I need, you know, get the new promotion or I need that or this for my family. Then they'll be happy. And it's, yeah, it's kind of just not true. You know, it's happy um, time. It's happy with yeah. your attention. Yeah. And Brandon said it so good in our last episode, you can't outsource your presence, you know, <laughs> totally. like, yeah. it's the one thing you can't replace with. <laughs> Not an app for that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you had freedom yeah, as well, which is so important. So many kids now have no freedom. They yeah. can't roam the woods because their parents are helicoptering around saying, oh, yeah. I might get hurt. And the only thing getting hurt is the kid's spirit. At that yeah. point. So I'm so happy you had that in your childhood. You could go explore and go be free. And there was some risk. A bear might have gotten you. You know, maybe you uh, you eat some bad maple syrup out of a tree, but yeah. uh, this is a risk you take. You know? What do these mushrooms do? You know, that's <laughs> <laughs> probably not what you wanted to. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome, man. And it's such a great point. So I uh, thank you for sharing that and, and making that point for us. Um, how old were you when you were like, I'm definitely going to get in the military? Oh, I wasn't like definitely sure until after junior hockey. So I would have been okay. 20, 22. But it was growing up in the woods. We ended up, you know, we, I was always like a G.I. Joe playing kid. 
uh, a little bit later once we got to a better house. I we'd always do like can't, we'd get camouflaged up, and my older brother and his cousins and my friends we'd have like BB gun fights, which looking back was extremely dangerous. But <laughs> we're still crawling around the forest anyway, <laughs> camouflaged up. Um, and, and it was always like, you know, there was that that side of it. I was an action movie fan, young and stuff, and I, I just didn't really ever think that it could be a job, you know, like even, even growing up like 16, 17, 18 into my 20s, I never considered our military one I would want to join. <laughs> so, I, mean, I was like, maybe if I was in the US, but uh, I learned about our special operations unit. I was working in our oil field uh, in between like the hockey season, my last junior hockey year and going into what would have been like the tryouts to let's say pro or semi-pro hockey. And I learned about our special operation unit uh, with this guy I was working with who had done a little bit of time in the army and he was just telling me about it. I didn't believe him at first. And then once I kind of went back and got on the old dial-up internet, found out he was telling the truth. And then I was obsessed from like, it was almost that day where I was like, I actually don't want to play hockey anymore. I want to go do this job. Wow. So you really bought all the recruitment stuff, huh? Yeah. (laughs) So can you tell us, because most of our listeners probably have absolutely zero idea what the Canadian special operations, uh, you know, unit is and kind of what the process is for even getting in. Yeah, sure. uh, Like our, our tier one unit is called JTF2. Um, uh, it's a small unit and you have to do two years in the regular army or any branch of the forces, really. You have to do two years before you can try out, which is go on the selection for this unit. So when I'd heard about it, I went to the recruiting center and I just wanted to go to the infantry, get my two years and then go try out. Um, and it just kind of takes from any branch in the military. Our infantry is the most successful because how physically demanding it is just to get in there. Uh, yeah, you do it. You go, you come to the the unit here. Like I'm in Ottawa, it's, it's here and then do a seven day selection. And that's like kind of, they call it, I can't remember what phase, but it's like the, the second phase of selection. So there's psychology, uh, psychological testing in your unit. There's physical testing in your unit. If you meet all the criteria, you come do the actual selection. If you pass that, you go on to a course uh, which is called the special operations assaulter course. So it's like gunfighter stuff, right? You're one doing, doing the hits and whatever. And that's like 10 months long, I think. And then that's still part of the selection. So you're always being, you know, observed and watched and you're tested rigorously and there's yeah. safety standards and performance standards and all this stuff. So there's a lot what, still that don't pass that course. Yeah, was it more mentally challenging than physical just from like the stress of like I could fail at any time or be cut or whatever? It's definitely always there, but they make sure that there's a lot of physical <laughs> stress as well. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So it's pretty tough. So uh, you yeah. Made... Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just saying, yeah, it's tough. Like it's, it just seems like, well, even selection, like the initial selection is seven days and it's just, it's so crazy how much you can get tested in that short amount of time. <laughs> yeah. When you never sleep, you, you, they make you do a lot more. You know? Yeah. So funny how that works. Um, yeah. So you made it through obviously. And uh, so like, I, I guess what happens after you make it through the, the whole 10 month process? Yes. Yeah, so if you make it through all that, uh, you get placed into one of the squadrons and you start 
then you really start learning. They say like the speed at which you learn something like CQB on course, like the close quarter battle fighting and shooting. It's like doubled when you get to the squadron, like guys are running fast and it's one of the tactics of like hostage rescue CQB. But and then you just, you try and get your, get your legs under you with the guys who have been doing it for, you know, some of them 10, 15 years. And then, uh, once you're in, that's when you, you eventually get on a, one of the cycles of deployment and you'll go overseas or you'll, you'll be here or you'll be training somewhere with your squadron. And then do that for as many years as you can handle it. <laughs> yeah. So what year was it when you like arrived to the, to your first squadron? Uh, 2009. So I did my selection okay. in 2008, my Salter course in 2009. And then I was placed in one of the squadrons, uh, at the end of 2009. Okay. Very cool. Um, yeah. and a very unique thing for, for JTF2 versus like US military is you guys actually have responsibility for within the homeland right it's not, yeah. it's not just that's right so can you talk can you talk a little bit about that because that's that's definitely a very unique um aspect of yeah so we have a domestic did. mandate that's sort of like your fbi hostage rescue team i guess um it's just it's paired here it's if you know shit really hits the fan and the rcmp or police whoever involved can't handle it because of the amount we we train hostage rescue and well because it's our mandate we train all kinds of different things that could happen or potentially happen domestically and then we're just ready to go there's always a group of guys like ready to do something within an hour or two it's pretty amazing um and how what was like the deployment uh tempo because i know you know here around 2009 to 11 was was pretty uh pretty aggressive here in the U.S. military, um, were you guys pretty much just nonstop rotating through? Uh, it was always nonstop in some way or another. Like, let me see. My first deployment was to Afghanistan 2010 and went over into 2011. And then there was kind of a break when Afghanistan was dying down before Iraq kicked off for us. So 2011, I did my sniper course in 2012. And there wasn't, did a couple like little things here and there in 2013 and didn't really get a full deployment until 2014, I think it was in Iraq. So it wasn't the pace, quite frankly, I'd hoped for when I got there. Um, but between the deployments and how much we travel for training and other little tasks, it was like, you're still gone plenty. I was looking at the average just before I got out and I was six to eight months every single year that I was in, that was over a decade. Wow. Like, yeah, man. And so were you, um, married and started a family or anything during this yeah. time? And, and so the boys were young at the start of the career. Um, and that was, a, that was a struggle. Like, because you're gone so much, it got a little bit easier in the later tours when I had FaceTime the first, like Afghanistan, it would be like a phone call with a kid who doesn't want to talk on the phone. Um, and yeah, it was hard. There's a lot of times I was questioning if I was doing the right thing or not. You know, there's, there's pluses and minuses when you come back and you get, let's say a month or two off straight, you know, if you're using that time wisely, that's a lot of, you know, time that you can be present with your children. Um, yeah, yeah. Stuff. I, I still don't even know if it's 
the right call if you're going to have a family, you know, like, I mean, the me right now that is not in the military says it's not because I get to spend a ton of time with my, with my kids. Um, it's a tough one for sure. Yeah. I mean, I guess, do you think it's kind of a loaded question, but do you think you would be the dad you are if you didn't have that experience? Uh, I don't think so because I also think, you know, everything makes you who you are. So (laughs) you can't really, I wouldn't trade that. I still wouldn't, you know, trade it in. I just, I like to be open and have these conversations with one of my boys were the ones who felt it the most, like three years I was just barely in the military when my daughter was being born. And like, she has seen me most days of her entire life. Um, Mm. So I just, I chat with it, chat with my boys about it and, you know, tell them the the job I was doing and what it was and how I assessed it at the time. Uh, But again, like I wouldn't go back and trade anything, but I wouldn't do it again starting now with the knowledge that I have. If that answers the question. (laughs) No, I'm confusing way possible. I get it. I get (laughs) it. Um, Yeah. For me, that's, that was probably the biggest motivator of why I left active duty was my daughter was born. I was like, yeah, I don't know if I want to do this for another 10 years yeah. and, and do that to her. So, um, I, you know, your boys are older now. Are, do they understand? Like, have you, have you been able to have kind of those tougher conversations with them about that or? Yeah, I've kind of just been chatting with them okay. quite openly their entire life. Um, and just what I was thinking and, and what the job was and how I assessed it. And, you know, as a young man, for me anyway, it's, you assess things differently. The world's different. Learning a bunch of different things. Like quite honestly, when I first got in, most of it was like an ego-driven endeavor. You know, it's like, what's the hardest thing I could possibly do? Okay, let's go prove to whoever that I can do that. Um, and it's you know, it's that journey it's, we go on. <laughs> yeah, it's. The, I mean, I don't think it's all bad. I think men are young men especially are kind of built for that mm-hmm. like it's it's kind of the, the yeah. point right is yeah. you, you want to prove that you're like a man now right like yeah. a rite of passage in a way so um dustin i think you have a question yeah dallas did you encourage your boys to go into the military um no you plus or minus on that well yeah how did you approach that uh i i think i've done a good job in <laughs> ensuring that they're not going to join the military um <laughs> No, I, 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 you know, I would support anything that they, they want to do. Um, but I'll, I will give my honest opinion on the pluses and minuses of it and having been through it and learned it. But then I think back, you know, if my dad gave me a list of pluses and minuses before I joined, I probably still would have said, thanks, boss, but I'm going, you know what I mean? So, <laughs> yeah, uh, but I won't be encouraging them to do it if that's, that's where you're at. Yeah. We'll we'll get there soon enough, and hopefully this episode can uh, air. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> but well, people that that comment will make a lot more sense here in about thirty minutes. So, um, all right. Well, hey, thanks for thanks for being very transparent about uh, you know all the time lost, and I think a lot of men can relate to that because what it's not just the military. There's so many jobs that require you to be away, um, and it's it's a it's a real challenge, right? And you know, I certainly even in my civilian life have. A lot of travel and I've, I've thought those same things like am i really doing the right thing like should yeah. I be home more and um yeah i don't know if there's just any final thoughts you had on that for like all the dads out there to like whether they need to make a change or maybe stay the course or something like that but 
I definitely think like when you are with them, be with them. You know what I mean? Like it's easy to make an excuse why we have to be on our phone or why we have to be checking this or that and blah, blah, blah. And they just want your time. They want to play with you. They want you to watch whatever they're showing you. You know what I mean? Like I, a lot of my work now is on my phone or on the computer with the music business, like the business side of the music business and social media and all this stuff. But like, I try to just get it done and chunk out that time and then not be hovering in between as much as possible. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's like, a great advice. Yeah. It, it's such a temptation. It's just, it's always right there. You so know. close all the time. I started leaving yeah. it in the other room. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Well, that was a good little point to break forward. Let's, I'd like to go a little bit into the specifics of kind of the highlights of your military career. And I do want to get into, you know, why you left. Um, and then we'll, we'll kind of go into the music career and, and more fatherhood stuff. But, sure. Yeah. So you, you trained very hard, obviously, uh, you went to sniper school, which I assume is extremely challenging. Um, and so then how does your role, you know, is it, is it a different, like, do you join a different platoon or something like that? What, what happens after becoming a sniper within JTF2 and I guess, are you still with the same squadron? And yeah, so I moved to like a, a sniper troop and it was all just snipers. Um, excuse me. And it was. It was so, it was such a unique and cool environment to be uh, learning in because we would have one, it's like the collection of the most <laughs> aggressive dudes you'd ever met. Um, but also just like always getting after learning new things, bringing in new ideas, different, uh, you name it, like pieces of equipment, gun parts, trialing this, that, learning some new ballistic thing and just everyone trying to push to get better and better. And we'd come back to this group of collection dudes and like you'd go on a trip and come back and just, you'd always be discussing different things that you tried and worked or tried and failed. And it was really just like always pushing the needle a little bit forward every single time. Um, literally every day, like it would be like on the range doing this on this other range, doing this and the fight room or doing long guns or just, it was, it was a unique and very cool place to work for that. Yeah. And like, obviously everyone who's there is the best, right? Cause oh, yeah. they've gone through quite a bit to be there. So, yeah. um, did you guys have basically just infinite, not infinite, but basically had free reign to kind of like say, Hey, we need this and we want to test it for this purpose. And yeah, it was pretty good. Like, it's, okay. it's definitely the, the top of our military, you know, um, we don't have a lot of stuff that you guys have in the U S in terms of like big, big assets. Do you know what I mean? But when it ter- came to like what we need on the ground, oh, most of it, we found a way to get it. Yeah. Mute Alvin got me. <laughs> Sorry. So you said the, um, some of the guys were pretty aggressive and it's funny you said that because when you said you were a sniper, the first thing that came to my mind was uh, an American sniper here got interviewed by, I think it was Reuters news. And they asked him, well, when you're, uh, when you're shooting people over in Afghanistan, what did you feel? And his simple response was, nah, recoil. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's like, Classic. It's like, you know, that's pretty hard. Cool. I was like, all right, yeah. I get it. Yeah. 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 Um, what number deployment? So I guess let's, let's just get right to it. You, your team holds the record for the longest confirmed kill in history. And it was, if I'm going to get it right this time. 
3,540 meters. That's so right. That's what, Brandon, 2.3 miles? Is that what you said? Because it's just under 2.2, I think. A 2.2, okay. Yeah. So, pretty long shot. Um, obviously, a boatload of work went into even making that a reality. Can you just talk about, like, you were talking about the the testing process a little bit, but what what was different? What what about your team was able to kind of push to that point to where you guys made that shot? Yeah, well, it was kind of everything that, that you know, our sniper troop was about and how how we trained every year just to get a little bit better and a little bit better. And the team we deployed with was phenomenal, for one. Like, uh, deck commander's good buddy of mine. I was a two IC, like it was a four-man debt. So I was a two IC, second in commander in charge of four people. I don't know what that title is, but then two other guys who were like number one and two. That's just how the number breaks up and you have different responsibilities based on those positions. Um, but yeah, we just, it was always pushing and pushing to get a little bit better, shoot a little bit further, shoot a little bit more accurate. And we would always go down to Texas to train before we would go overseas. There's a really good school uh, called Accuracy First out of Canadian Texas, actually, which is funny. Uh, and you could shoot it all directions. You'll have to explain that's that. right. Canadian Texas. Yeah, that's the count. I think it's the county name or the little tiny town. It's really, yeah. In the first time I got my <laughs> itinerary to travel there, I was like, wait, is this a mistake of some kind? <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna have to look it up. That's funny. Bunch of Canadians went to Canadian Texas. Yeah. That's that's actually pretty amazing. <laughs> I'm looking it up right now. Mm-hmm. Canadian ah. Texas, it is a city in Texas. Yeah. I'll be. How about that? So you went so we to Canada would, and landed in Canada. That's right. We'd go down there and train. <laughs> and uh, the ballistic program, the instruction was just phenomenal. And before this deployment where we made that shot, uh, this company was down there and they introduced this little thing that was – it was a prism essentially. So it was like this little box, not much bigger than like a coffee mug turned sideways. Um, and it looked like they had just finished machining it. It was kind of a prototype. And we brought it out to the range and uh, it just reflects an image like a prism would do to, so that if the shooter, let's say, was pointing his gun up in the sky, as you would need to do to ballistically get the angle to shoot that far, it could reflect the image so that he could still see the target that the spotter is referencing, which wow. previous to this, like it's a, it's a, in long range like that, it's a game changer because yeah, if you shoot, you know that when you dial the elevation on your scope, what it's doing is the reticles pointing down so that you have to point your rifle up. It's all it's doing. So like you're pointing up so that you can shoot farther, essentially. Once you run out of space, you're now holding in the reticle, which means you're pointing a little bit higher. Now, this is obviously exaggerated, but you're holding higher. So what the shooter now can see is the clouds you know or like the top of a building so previously before this prism the spotter would have to communicate with the shooter and say okay you're looking at what window blah 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 and you take a measurement take the shot it's not a hit your correction is given and let's say come down four mils that shooter will go from his reference point on a window worst case scenario a cloud down four mils and try again so it's very tough to make shots this far before this little tiny set of mirrors like completely <laughs> changed everything. Um, so we had that. <laughs> and when we were training with it in Texas before going overseas, I actually told 
the troop that I was with and some of our chain of command was there. We're shooting on the line. And I remember I got up and I was like, I promise you guys on this tour, we're going to break the world record. <laughs> do, you, do you remember what it was what the record was before uh i think it was like 28 um 24 or 28 i can't remember it was uh a british dude you probably google it. i can't i can't remember what it was so i'll, I'll pick it up yeah i'm curious what rifle and uh ammunition and grain did you use to, to make that shot yes yeah, so it was a, a mcmillan tac 50 so 50 cal and it was McMillan, but by the time it was there, it was pretty customized with our, our gun dudes. Um, it had like a KDX bracket on it at that point. And I was a gigantic suppressor that's like <laughs> this long. Um, and then we were shooting um, a 50 cal. It was an American-made round. And at the grain, I do not remember. But 50 cals are big bullets regardless of the grain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's a big round. Yeah. yeah, at that point, um, it's like, who cares about grain? <laughs> rip yeah. something in half, you know? Yeah. So for reference, the previous record prior to your guys' team was 2,800 meters. Well, 2,815. So yeah. you guys crushed that by almost exactly 800 meters. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty wild. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll layer over the footage so people can see, like, the... The you guys were like in an elevated building across the yeah, way and, across the river. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's pretty incredible. So like you guys shoot almost ten second time of flight and then it hits and yeah, um, just pretty ridiculous that that was able to be done. So um, well, it was cool that it, we consistently did it after that for right. over a week over and over. Like it, the fight was perpendicular, but it sort of got closer to us a little bit. So like I was. I mean, I said this on on Sean Ryan's podcast, and I, I bet you we broke the previous record four or five times, like <laughs> over the wild. next week. But I don't know. We just weren't really keeping track after that. <laughs> the long. <laughs> this was we had a big one. Who cares about this was yeah. consistently happening over? Yeah, yeah. that's really yeah. Cool. That's that's what was cool. Seeing that like the gun system, the prison, everything was just holding. The ballistic program was working. The shooting training was working. The spotter shooter communication was working, and it was like. Well, that's good to see. Yeah. And what can you just tell us a little bit about like what your guys' purpose was while you were there and what the mission was? And yeah, so this like this particular mission, why we were in that hotel to begin with, was there was uh an Iraqi push, like the Iraqi forces that were trying to push Mosul or push ISIS out of Mosul were to the north, and we were waiting for them to start this push, which would have been from our observation point a perpendicular kind of fight, right? So we could see the Iraqis moving, we could see ISIS fighting them, and we could support by by firing on ISIS. Um, and mainly, like, we were going to support with, like, observation and calling airstrikes. And when we started engaging, and it was it was really close. Uh, actually, my buddy, even further than that, 3540, and earlier in that day, he shot around, like, ricocheted and hit a guy in the leg, and he dropped him. And that was probably at 36 or 3,700 meters or something like that. Uh, and I was like, oh my God, <laughs> it got like, like damn near 4K. And then so we started engaging them to get them to hide in the building. And then we called an airstrike on it. So for comparison, 
ISIS was maybe capable of hitting someone from 500 meters away, you think? I mean, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. You could hit people from 10 times as far? Like, what, what's the Well, comparison? it would depend because they had mortar teams that were pretty deadly. So, like, hmm. okay. And then they had a sniper team that tried to, like, stalk us during one of the days, actually. We saw them moving under this trailer and uh, we just, we got to them first. But it, it, there was, a uh, message later that came over the radio thing that was intercepted and I won't get into that, but message was, Hey, no more <laughs> infilling by daytime to the bad guy sniper teams. <laughs> That's just wild. Right. Now, um, who, who was the famous sniper from America? I'm trying to remember George, maybe you can refresh my memory. He passed away. We got Chris back. Chris yeah, yeah, Chris you guys there around mm-hmm. the same time Chris was there. He had a pretty interesting uh, story. I was not there when he was there, unless he was, because he was what? He was a SEAL, right? Yeah. I, I think he was Correct. there like in the earlier years. Yeah. Because I think you he know, was like, like, I feel like they were doing like Fallujah or yeah. Ramadi. I don't think yeah. it was. Most yeah, of it wasn't very long range. It was more. Yeah. In the they, streets. I think a lot yeah. of what they did was like overwatching for the Marines as they were going house to house and stuff. Yeah. So your guys' role was extremely different, right? You're, yeah way off and yeah um i guess any other final like things you want to just discuss from like the the high points of of the military before we move on to well i just i'll definitely say there was a ton of high points i really like the guys i got to know and train with and fight with um like you know there's some that'll just be like brothers forever there was just tons of cool shit like we'd train in the mountains and we'd train in the water and we'd train in the sky and like shoot and learn all this this cool stuff so there was a ton of highlights um at one point it was just decision time that like the good stuff is not outweighing stuff i don't like anymore yeah well i and i know i mean obviously setting the world record is pretty insane but is there any other stories or Something that happened that was just like, whoa, or something that was just really cool that you guys, you know, still talk about or share with each other? Um, most of us always talk about this one, and it was only a training jump, but we were doing a training exercise, and uh, it was like a big winter exercise. It was supposed to be just a bunch of layers to this thing. So it was snipers. We were doing a drop, so we, like, dropped with these computers, some snowmobiles out in the middle of nowhere. And then the next day we loaded up in like a, an airport that was, I don't know, a couple hours away while we were flying. We got all our gear on, jumped in in the middle of the night and we were supposed to go like link up with these sleds and head off on this like winter operation thing. But while we were, we were climbing to altitude, it was like this crazy snowstorm was going on and we we're watching and could see that like, at two different elevation levels, there was just crazy clouds. And like, we don't train in the clouds. <laughs> you know what I was mean? Like, so we're going and I had, I'd done quite a few jumps at this point. I was always the navigator. So I'd be the first one out. I remember they opened the ramp and all I see is clouds. Like the sun's almost down. Cause we're doing it just at like, as soon as it's completely dark. So I can just see like way off on the horizon, almost go but with my night vision. I could see like, it was pretty clear. I'm like, Oh, this is it's just a wall of clouds. Okay, we're gonna have to, and it's just training. We're gonna have to do like a stop, and we'll figure out another way in or jump in tomorrow. And then we get all the, the countdowns. It was like thirty seconds, and I'm like, "What the hell?" I'm like, "There's no way." I'm, 
I, there's no way they're going to send us. I had such confidence. I went to the edge of the Rams and the jump master's like, all right, 10 seconds. And I'm looking at him and he gets me. He's like, the go. <laughs> like, I remember clearly thinking like, what the fuck? And I jumped out into free fall. And I'm going, going, going. I think I pulled that 12,000 feet or something fully in the clouds in the night. And you're like, this is every single thing we talk about not doing because it's yeah. dangerous as shit. So I just remember like my NVGs are fogging up and I have a little compass on like a nav board that I use when I'm jumping. And I just remember like going under my NVGs are frozen and I hit, I hit them up. And in my brain, I was just like, timeout. <laughs> like I'm under canopy in the clouds, just rubbing off this compass, trying to like at least get on the bearing I'm supposed to be to navigate. And then I'm on the radio trying to get guys like, okay, where get on this bearing, like don't do anything crazy. There's all kinds of people in the clouds right now under canopy. And it was just the wildest thing. And then we eventually landed. I somehow landed right in the DZ that we had planned. Guys were spread all over the place, landing in like rivers and trees and <laughs> fucking yeah. So we it's amazing. We talk about that. All the guys that did that joke, they call it the jump. We talk about that quite often for having beers. <laughs> can, you, can you just explain a couple of the reasons why that's so dangerous? Because for someone who's, I've never even like free fall, I've done airborne, but uh, a lot of people I don't think understand like what can go wrong. Yeah. So like a lot of being in a flying in a stack, if you go to a drop zone, you can kind of see them doing this. It's all in the daytime because it's visual, right? So if person A or the number one in the stack, you know, turns, person two does not see that and they collide, both of your canopies collapse and then you die. So like at nighttime, it becomes very important that you can see the stack. And we have these IR like strobes. So as I'm navigating, I can look back and I can see my guys stacked and we have comms with radio. So we're like, okay, we got our full stack. Let's navigate to whatever target we got to go to. In the clouds, you don't see any of that. Now we have drills. If like you're coming up to a cloud, okay, we're entering cloud. Um, the number one or whatever, we're just going to stay on this bearing. Nobody making turns. Okay, we're out of the cloud. But like, we never made a habit of just flying in full storm clouds. And I actually said this after. I'm like, look, in like the after action, like if we were going to be jumping through winter storms at night, full equipment, like night vision and oxygen and shit, I'm like, let's at least train it in the daytime first, <laughs> you know, because we don't. So... Yeah, so there's there's that. There's just like it's a very visual thing when you're flying in close proximity to other people under parachutes. Um and a lot of it is like you have visual references. You use a lot of things. You use some tools which are altimeters, uh a compass and like GPS. But as you're planning to navigate so that you don't get lost. You're always, you're having visual references. Like, I know that there's a river over here. I know that I'll be able to see in the horizon a town that's whatever kilometers away. And you're just, you're checking in as you try and get a whole stack of people to one point on the ground. So, yeah, there's a lot that's dangerous with it. That's using like the high winds and all, like this, then your stuff freezing up like it did inside of those clouds also sucks. And that's if you're in like a, a pretty, like remote area, but if you're in like a mountainous area, it's probably even worse, huh? Because you're like you're trying to oh, look yeah. at like and you altitude and like figure out am I close to a yeah. mountain range? Like, <laughs> yeah. what's going on? Like, well, it's like, terrifying, man. Yeah, you just it's definitely not ideal. 
<laughs> Y'all must have had an extra parachute for your bottles for that. <laughs> oh my gosh. I thought I was just stupid. Once I actually thought about it, I should have been like, no, I have enough jumps to know that That's you're wild, an idiot man. and they're not doing the right thing. Like crazy. Nuts, man. Dallas, thank you so much for your stories. Really enjoyed it. I'm going to jump off and uh, hit the hay. Um, but uh, looking yeah. forward to uh, watching the rest of it when it uh, when it closes. Yeah. Yeah, likewise. Later, D. Bye. And we're going to take a quick break because Brandon has a tiny bladder. So you got 60 <laughs> seconds, bro. Look, man, liquid death is crushing my bladder right now. This, <laughs> this tall not boy is not a good idea. I'm not cutting this, by the way. Just um, as staying in. It's like an ad. Liquid? No, that's good. It's liquid worth death. it, but Please it's pressure. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> we should reach out to him. Hurry up. Hurry up. We got a little child over here. Hey there, we hope you're enjoying this episode of the Present Fathers Podcast. Our mission is to reach as many men as possible and equip them to be excellent family leaders. We believe that by inspiring and equipping men, we can change bloodlines and positively impact our culture. You can join us on this mission and partner with us today by doing one of two things. First, go to your favorite podcast platform, whether that's YouTube videos or Apple or Spotify, Google, etc., and leave us a review. The way the algorithm works is that it really values reviews and this helps promote our stories to get them out to more people. The second way you can help is by sharing your favorite episodes with friends and family. Help us get the word out so that we can make a difference in our culture. Thank you for watching and we hope that you join us in our mission to change lives. All right, we're back from the break. Dallas, thanks for sharing that crazy jump story. Glad you made it through that one. Um, hopefully all the guys were relatively okay. I assume there are a few injuries maybe, but all good to go. So um, at what point did you start kind of thinking like, mm, I don't know if this whole military thing's for me anymore. And, you know, uh, yeah. obviously a certain thing happened in 2020 that kind of played a role in that. Yeah. I'll, I'll let you kind of tell that. that Give me the, the last nudge. Uh, yeah. For me, it was I always looked at this career and I weighed how much I enjoyed it and the pluses versus the negatives. And as long as they were outweighing the negatives... Um, I said, you know, I'd, I'd keep doing it. And it, it started to, like, there was some stuff that was slowly changing. Our unit was growing. Um, the, the military was growing. And with that, you know, just some stuff can fall off the rails. Most of it wasn't that big of a deal. It was just enough where I'm like, we don't got to be doing that. We don't, we're going down the wrong direction with this and that. And then there was some government stuff that started creeping in, like just, trying to waste our time with different courses that in my opinion had nothing to do with getting better at becoming a counterterrorism unit. Um, and it was just starting to change enough that I was starting to question it. Um, and then in 2020, I guess it would have been, they started, there was this big push that everyone um, was required to take this, like, you know, well, obviously COVID hit and all these things. And it, I thought that our, our little camp was going to be, you know, we would be like, okay, yeah, everybody, you get in the gates and you're like, let's just carry on with what we're doing because we have an important, you know, job to train for. Um, but like the, like the masking thing started coming in everywhere and it would be, and it wasn't even like there was a consistent narrative. It would be like, okay, we're over here talking with a group of friends if so-and-so is coming to the meeting 
now you got to put on a mask. And I'm like, from the very start, I'm like, I'm not playing this, this game. I'm not playing. <laughs> so, um, it, that was just another bad taste in my mouth. And mm-hmm. I was starting to get into a little bit of trouble because you're like, well, you didn't put on your mask in building A where there's a sign that says put your mask on and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, don't talk to me about that. And then it'd be like, someone would tell my sergeant major and he'd be like, look, we're doing this and that. And you have to sign this thing that says you were warned. And then I'd like take it, throw it in the garbage. <laughs> like it was just, it was starting to get, I was like, I have a very clear line in the sand here and I'm not going to play this game. It yeah. is ridiculous. And then, like, everyone agreed, except for just a very few amount of people that were, let's say, in sergeant major positions that were making these rules. I'm like, guys, we just have to, like, stand, just stand our own ground on this. Like, yep. you talk to me with no mask, we're right beside each other. And then you're going to this office and you're covering your face for some reason that you don't agree with. Um, and I was like, look, if, you, if everyone wants to wear it, go ahead. I don't care. Half the time we wear balaclavas anyway. That's not the point. Like, if you feel that you are not safe by not having it on, then put it on. Like, yep. it's I feel like that now traveling around. Some people still wear them. Some people don't. I don't care. Um, and then, so that was starting to get me in a little bit of, of trouble. And then, the the you know the there was they were creating a vaccine for it, and it was coming. And I just at first I was just like, yeah, I don't. I don't think I need it. I'm looking at everything. I'm not in the demographic that appears to be at a high risk of this stuff. And I'm like, I feel pretty confident in my immune system. And, and then it was just like, excuse me. <laughs> it's like, everyone's blown away. Like, you will take this. Well, okay, let me go talk to the doctor. I didn't, didn't have any real opinions. I'm like, it wasn't a political thing. Like it seems to be, it was just, I don't think I require this. And I do the same thing with the flu shot. I'm like, yeah. I don't, I, I, if I ever get the flu, it's never that bad. So I don't take it. And I'm pretty like, I'm obsessed with ingredients in our house and our cleaners and our food and our, the water yeah. I drink. And like, the more I age and, and continue to learn about this stuff, the less I want to just take random shit. So I was like, you know, I just went to the doc and I was like, okay, so what's in it? He couldn't answer it. I'm like, how does it interact with someone like me who's had a bunch of concussions? Is there anything to do with like brain? I'm reading that there's some heart issues potentially for a young man. And he's like, he couldn't answer it. He didn't know. I'm like, so you're telling me that this is perfectly safe for every single person, no matter what their medical history is. I'm like, can you tell me any other medication that fits that description? Like no matter your medical history, it's perfectly safe for every single person. I'm like, peanut butter isn't perfectly safe for every person. And they just, I was getting no medical advice from our medical professionals. So I was just starting to get a little bit like, well, this is weird. And then the, the response to me turning it down. So once, once there was like some shuffling around of like, oh yeah, I'm just going to pass. They're like, oh, you can go get it if you want. They're highly recommending. Everyone really, really, really should. And then when it became like, it was mandated, like you're okay, you're going to get it or you're getting kicked out of the military. You're, you're ordered by this, our CO to go to this appointment. It was like clever wording. So I went to the appointment and then I said, no, thank you. And then when I told my chain of command this, I was like that week, I was threatened to be kicked out of our our troop and posted out of the unit, which this is the most insane response I'd ever seen. At this point, I would have been in the unit like 12 years or something. Like I could have got wasted, drove my truck through the front gate, and it would not have been that crazy of a response. 
And I've seen crazy things happen where they're like, okay, it's ridiculous. We might want to talk to this guy to see if he's doing all right. You know, <laughs> for this one thing, it was absolutely insane. I couldn't believe it. Um, yeah. So I, I was just, I was blown away. And then like the final day, the last day I'd ever went to our camp, I was going into a meeting with the CEO or our Sam and a bunch of other people. And they were going to tell me why, like, cause I wrote mem- memos and like, look, you can write a memo and say why you shouldn't take it and all of this stuff. And they were just going to tell me why they were declining, you know, my reasons or whatever. But I also wouldn't put on a mask. So they're like, wouldn't let me. At first, my own sergeant major brought me over and he's like, they're going to make you put on a mask. And I was like, well, you know me. <laughs> he's like, I thought you were going to say that. So he went in early and tried to like diffuse it. He's like, hey, guys, Dallas is here, but he really he doesn't do this thing. <laughs> and like the sergeant major of the unit came out our RSM. I just, he was like, I need you to put a mask on. I said, no. I said, I didn't even own one. He's like, I can get you one. But that's when I asked him, like, is everyone going to be wearing a mask in this meeting? And he said, yes, absolutely. And then he said, then everybody's safe unless they don't work. Then why are you asking me to put one on? And then he, uh, he got a little bit aggressive. And at this yeah. point, at this point, I knew I was... <laughs> Pretty close. To, I got on very thin ice. So he like got puffy chest and I called him out on it. And uh, he kicked me out. And then I asked him if he wanted to come outside with me and he did not. And then that was the last day my past ever worked to get into uh wire training center. <laughs> Man. Yeah. It's just, uh, we'll, we'll talk afterwards on, on my own experience with it, but just. What well, a, there's so much of it. And it ludicrous. made it so much easier just because it was like, it's almost comical. Like, this yeah. and like, it just makes it easy when I'm like, okay, well, <laughs> I'm not going to sit here sad because I left a unit that like had that kind of mindset take it over, you know? Right. Yeah. That's, it's insane. So, no, go ahead, Justin. I was going to say, so I, I worked for a company and I was in operating rooms five days a week covering surgery, surgeries throughout the Southeast. And I was probably in over a hundred hospitals. Half of them didn't have credentials required to sign in, which was crazy to me because they would require you to wear a mask, but you can walk into a hospital. They don't know who you are. You walk into the OR. It's a sterile environment. And then Whoa, everybody dude. knows that masks do not work unless they are like some serious masks or you have a respiration system. And essentially yeah. it's the only thing that's going to stop a real virus. So it's just, I mean, there's things that will help alleviate the spread, but I mean, even in sterile environments, they know, you know, things, things happen. It's, it's the most asinine thing I've ever seen in my entire life. Even doc, every doctor I spoke to was like, this is just getting stupid. It's, it's absolutely useless. It's all political and it's, it's just power mongers essentially trying to, you know, uh, avert their will on everybody else. And. And they didn't, they say, oh, follow the science. Well, that's funny because the smartest people in the room you didn't listen to. Yeah. Yeah. That's what's frustrating. So what did, so they like discharge you? I I don't know what the equivalents are in the Canadian. Was it like a dishonorable discharge? No. So this, as I was going down this path of administrative issues and I was about to be like, it was, if you get it, you're going to get kicked out. I started going to our a different set of doctors with a whole bunch of like 
I've had a ton of concussions and TBIs, you know, Cyper and from para and all this stuff from fighting and whatnot. So I started chasing that up in the medical way. And I was like, I ended up getting medical release before the admin on this side got okay. enough that they could. So you're, you're medically retired. That's right. So okay. I was kicked out of our camp and our unit. I had to do all the release stuff like. I had to turn in my kit like via text message that I've had in my stall for 12 years. Like, where is this thing? And I'm like, I don't know. You guys aren't allowing me to come to work. Good luck. <laughs> you know? And in the military, you have to do like 100% kit accountability every week, right? So I'm like, you haven't allowed me to be there for three months to do my kit accountability. You tell me where it is. And so it's just a gong show like that. But I ended up medically releasing. Okay. Well, that's uh, good. I'm, I'm glad yes. you were able to, to still kind of... Well, yeah. Some people weren't so lucky. Like, yeah, they, yeah, like, no. I'm not taking it. I'm not taking it. Well, you're kicked out then. And then they try mm-hmm. to like turn it over, invite some people back, and lots of people are like, "Go to hell." That is, <laughs> uh, that's a yeah, like I said, we'll talk after. But I yeah. really watched that exact scenario. Happen, yeah, so, uh, yeah, I gotta watch what I say. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, so you you medically retire. Um, obviously, music was a passion of yours you know, I assume way before you did it full time, but th- like, did you just decide pretty much right away? Hey, that's what I'm going to do. Or kind of what, did, what did life look for you in that moment there? Uh, so it was 2019. I was just talking about this the other day, 2019 in the fall was when I did my first open mic at a place. I was like starting to see music around, um, starting to notice it more. It looked like a really cool thing. I've always been a big fan of music. Um, and it was actually corresponded that with my brother uh, was big into music and he had a studio and stuff in his basement. And he talked about recording a song at some point, but he passed away in 2019. And it was like one of those things that sparks like, oh, what was I waiting for? You know? And then I found processing all of that with him dying and, and songwriting just helped me so much. And then I was, I was like, and this is also, it's corresponding with the unit and my opinion of it is dropping. I'm finding this new thing that I'm passionate about. And then I was like the same focus I had when I was going into the unit. When I was trying, when I was training, I was going to go to selection. Now all went into just songwriting, guitar playing and singing. It was like, by time I was like out of the military, like you are officially a civilian. I was like, cut this leash. Like I'm a rare and I was playing probably four or five bar shows a week. Like I'd go to work. And then I would go play a three hour bar set. Then I'd come out. Um, yeah, I was. I I could not get out fast enough. Very cool. Were you were you uh, playing solo or were you playing with someone else at the time? No, that was solo acoustic. Like so, I did. A, I started like in 2019 with open mics because I could only play a few songs. And I started talking to bar managers when I was at these places, like, and they're like, "Well, you got to learn three hours of music." So I was just trying to learn as many songs as I could, cover songs and write some songs until I could play three hours. And I was like, "All right." Now will you book me? And they're like, well, no, we have all these others. I'm like, yeah, so like trying to crack all these different codes in this crazy business. And I just, I drew a bubble around Ottawa. In like two hours, I could drive, play, and come back. Um, and I just contacted like every place that had live music. It's awesome. Yeah. And then once I'm like, oh yeah, I played here and here and here. They're like, okay, we'll give you a chance. Oh, yeah, and then yeah. like, it just built slowly, but it was, it's yeah. cool. Um, I, I wanted to follow up actually back up a little bit um how have you communicated to your to your older son specifically probably the the, um your decision to kind of take a stand for what you believed in uh 
regardless of the consequences. And, and, you know, I think there's a lot of lessons that we can draw from, um, you know, what happened. And, uh, if we can maybe just take a minute and kind of, in your words, what, what would those lessons or what are the things that you want people to take away from that? Not, not just the raw circumstances of it, but yeah. Well, I, I think it's just, don't watch the news. <laughs> That's kind of a joke. But just take like your own life experience, who you look up to, people that are smarter than you, not just people that say they're smarter than you. Just take all the information and and then see how you feel about it. Like that's a decision like that. Like I can't even imagine making the other decision. Like for me, and I know people were pressured into it, and they're like, "I'm the only income in the house. I'm going to lose my job. I, I literally has to do it." Um, and again, I think this honestly, a lot of it goes back to how I grew up and how I was raised, where I'm like, "Okay, if I lose my job over this, but it's something that I believe in, that I don't care. I'll figure it out. Like, it's going to be fine, you know." Which wouldn't what would have not been fine with me if I said, "I don't want to do this." Okay, but I'll do it. Like that would eat at me. And if I got shot, like I'm sure I'd be fine. I'm a pretty healthy guy. You know, I might have some myocarditis or <laughs> like, like, it's just the point is no, I, I, in my life, I try to make all of these good choices about ingredients and stuff like that. And I really, really believe in freedom. Now, to me, to like bend a knee, I'm like, that is not a, it just would not jive with me. So I tried to have that conversation about why I'm not doing this job now. Why you see me playing guitar so much, <laughs> you know, like it's just, you, you have to stand up for what you believe in. Um, but be open-minded in that. I think just like the foundation of our decision should be like, let people be free if they're not going around harming people, you know, like, and we just, we continually, we continually trade our freedom for security and we're doing it in like greater and greater numbers. We're outsourcing all of this so-called security to people that I don't believe have our best interests in mind. And it's, there's a ton of it. It's profit driven and stuff like that. And like, we just, a lot of the time we just sit back and assess and see how we feel like you'll, you'll know what the right decision is. Um, those are the chats I had with them. Yeah. Um, it's good, man. Yeah. And like they were pressured, right? Because they, you know, sports, I'm like, oh, geez, you know, they're they're threatening that you won't be able to finish the hockey season or like my parents, my mom's like, oh, they won't let me go watch my grandchildren play hockey if I don't get this, you know? So there's like crazy wow. pressure and coercion, all kinds of all over the means. It wasn't just that, though. It was, it was also they were willing to give away your freedoms, not just their own. Because like you said, if you're not hurting anybody, but they would, they would say that you were by not getting yeah. the shot. And it's like, well, that's the craziest reverse thing ever. That, well, don't I have the exactly. freedom to live in a place where I'm safe with, I'm like, what the, it's like your freedom and like, beliefs of things no, don't extend that's on. That's not how this works. Yeah. You yeah. don't want to get sick. Stay your butt at home. Yeah. Well, that's how you really fail. And there it. would still be like there. I, I got gigs that I the places that would not book me after this, musicians that would not play with me. There's a vocal coaching place in Ottawa. I was like, yeah, I want to come for lessons. Perfect. They send me the stuff. I'm like, you need to be double whatever vaccine boosted in order to, like, how are we still doing this? This was like a month Man. ago. I swear to God. 
like, a month ago yeah wow. looked at the site yeah for, depending on when people are listening or watching this it's currently january 25th 2024 so yeah yikes yeah. um well, I, I agree wholeheartedly with the message that, you know, you try to uh, share with your boys. And I think all of us should take to heart what you said there. Um, and it's not just with this one issue that that mentality is what we need to instill, especially in our sons. Right. Because yeah. eventually something is going to happen when they become young men or men yeah. and have their own families where that you're going to have to take a stand. Yeah. Um, and like you said, you know, you were raised that way to kind of stand for your beliefs and your ideals. And as long as, again, like you said, Take take an open mind to things. Make sure you're taking in the information. Like it's okay to have your beliefs evolve yeah, as absolutely. you learn new things. But if you truly believe it, don't just you know buckle on it. But yeah. Um, have you learned anything along the way doing music full time that uh, has either you know helped you be a better father or um, just some surprising things that you want to share? Um, well, I think. Now uh, my family really connects via music, which I'm finding super cool. A lot when I was playing little bars and and stuff, my sons didn't really care too much. When I started playing bigger shows and I have songs on Spotify or Sirius XM and stuff, they're like, they started picking up the guitar. Now whether that's a coincidence or not, that's awesome. But uh, <laughs> now now we play together when they're here. We'll jam. Like the last time they came, uh, which was like a month ago, my middle son, I guess, or the the 15 year old showed me how to play a song that I didn't know. And I was actually, quite frankly, too intimidated to try and learn it because it seemed hard. And he taught me this song. We like jammed it the whole time they're here. So they're starting to play a lot. And I find that really cool that like, and just my daughter, if I'm jamming, I have to turn on a microphone for her or she'll grab her little guitar and play along. And the the family, it's like, you know, we're gathering around this super cool new activity. And we never did that with like, counterterrorism training <laughs> uh so that and then for me i i like i want to show them um and i, I get a lot of messages from from vets that are kind of inspired by this which was not surprising but it was something i didn't really expect that like you get out of the military a lot of people have a really hard time with what do i do next there's a big part of my identity was this this job or being a special operations person or that and it's like how do i move on to something next or is it too late and like you know i started country music at 30 whatever i would have been 30 so 40 years old now i'm like this new career of being a songwriter you know it's like it seems like a crazy career period <laughs> and i'm like yeah you can do it just um so I think just showing that like, you know, there's no, you can keep changing, keep doing whatever you want. You don't have to have it figured out at 18. You don't have to have your entire life figured out at 20. You don't have to have your entire life figured out at 40. Like, do, do you, because this is one of the things I was actually going to ask you. Do you think that having focus on a, a new purpose, a new goal was what helped you transition from, from quitting the military aside from the, the medical um, issues that you were facing politically? Definitely. Yeah, I would need to. I, I actually tell a lot of people this that are asking about getting out or, you know, they're, they're concerned about that transition is like, just find something that that same passion that you had, because it's hard work to get into a unit like this, you know, and we're there and we're, we're going million miles an hour. Just put the brakes on all of that and be like, I'm going to sit on my couch for a while while I figure it out. It doesn't generally go well. So just telling you guys like find something you're passionate about and and 
transition into that. Put your, your passion into that thing. And, you, and your your family will be better off for it. Your children will be it's something, you know, they're going to see that you're you're doing and accelerating and focusing and, and showing, you know, what hard work is and, and and passion, quite frankly. And it might be something they do with you or it might not be. But overall, you will be a better person. It's good for your mental health, which is good for your health, which is good for your family. Right. Yeah. Now, the the music itself, let's go back to that for just a second. How does the music play into your legacy for your children? Because I know it's a it's a big part. You've said that you've been teaching them, but but how does it play into your legacy for them? I just want them to see that if there's something you want to do, just go do it. I I I don't know. Like, what do you mean by legacy? Just so I'm not confusing it in the answer. Like. Sure. So, like anything that you want to you want to pass down to them uh, that that will last, like for them to to use throughout their lives. Like like you're saying, you're you're going after a passion. You're going after something, and you're you're believing in yourself. Okay. You know that yeah, kind of then, thing. Yeah. Then I, I would say the lesson of it, you know, more than like, do I care if they listen to my song thirty years down the line? Not really. But if they're like, you know, this part was really cool to see that, you know, he went after this and that, and he got to witness it and. I hope that they come out on the road with me at some point, quite honestly. And like I keep saying, the success in music to me is having my family with me no matter where I'm going. I, I'm not yeah. interested in having another job where I'm gone all the time. Now, I do travel. I try to keep it short. My young kids and, and wife are with me on – I did a tour for like three months in the fall. And they were like in and out like five nights five different channels and hotels. And then we'd like, she's like, I need a little break. <laughs> and I'd come home for two days and drive six hours to the next gig. And they'd come on another bit of the run with us. Like to me, it's having it sorted out enough to like, whether it's an RV or a tour bus, like I'm with my family and depending on the success level, maybe it's really nice hotel rooms, you know, but yeah. success to me is doing this and having my family along for all of it. Mm, I love that, man. Um, you were kind of going down this path a little bit and, and I've, you know, on some of your Instagram posts, you've talked about, you know, mental health and stuff. And, um, especially for guys coming from units like you, I think there's a huge stigma around like saying, I'm not doing too good. Right. And, um, I think that same hesitation to be vulnerable about, I'm just really struggling is, is something a lot of men, struggle with uh, in our modern world you know what have you found that helps men um ask for help you know uh because yeah just say ask for help yeah it's what you need to do but again the the fear of rejection or or judgment often outweighs that need totally for people i think people should be doing something creative Creativity, creative work, it inevitably makes you vulnerable as soon as you make something and show anyone. Do you know what I mean? Like if you write a song and sing it to someone, you are in a very vulnerable state. <laughs> like if you yeah. make poetry, if you paint a picture, if you make a leather good or woodwork something, you know what I mean? Like if you get into creative work, it's almost like you, you practice becoming vulnerable and it's easier to say, like, I don't have to write a sad song, country song now to say, like, hey, right now, I'm not feeling great about whatever it is. I know I need to 
go to nature or I need a mega dose of psilocybin. <laughs> yeah. Uh, actually, that was that was one thing I know that you had. Uh, after you got out, right? You uh, was it purely recreational, or or did you start no. uh, any of any of that for for medical reasons? Yeah, I almost, mental health. I don't like mushrooms recreationally very much there's been a couple times like i'm on a hike and i'm really in nature i can i can connect dots but no i don't like just go party and take mushrooms and <laughs> that would probably just make me go insane uh no i did like it's some of the most profound days of my whole life have been a mass like four to seven gram dose of psilocybin and i would I, I've done it by myself and I know the first few times I was just, I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know if like, does it make you violent? That wouldn't be good if there's somebody near me. Like it, there was just a bunch of concerns that I didn't really know. So I, I did it by myself. Now I've learned like there's, I don't think there's a possibility of me ever being violent on mushrooms. Um, but it, I, it was just the most incredibly profound and healing experiences I have ever had. And I think that every adult should do it maybe once, sometimes twice a year. What did you, what, what changed for you? What healed for you from the experience? Well, the, the biggest thing on the first one was what truly being at peace with my brother passing away. Like it was mm. the hardest thing I had ever struggled with. And it, it just came to me in such a crazy way. Um, and literally from whatever I did the the dose and it's over, you know, six or eight hours later, it was like night and day on how I felt about it, how I, I viewed it, like more about how I felt. And it was like that massive amount of pain and grieving was gone. That's good to hear, man. And, uh, I'm, I'm hoping, especially here in America that, uh, those, will be legitimized in a way that, you know, people who actually need help can have that as an option. Um, we, we interviewed a former Green Beret who went and did the, uh, the Ibogaine yeah. uh, treatment and it's complete. I, I mean, I see him from time to time and it's completely changed his life and his family. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's illegal. So he had to like go to another country to yeah. do it. And yeah. <clears throat> You know, seems like there's the a result. lot of people working on it. Like there it, are, yeah, there's a lot of red tape. You know, you, you were talking about it with the whole COVID thing. You know, yeah. that, that that same machine, and I, it breaks my heart because <clears throat> I just think of all the people who, you know, if they're if they're it's if it's a controlled setting and it's like you yeah, know, from a medical point of view, it's it's nothing but help. You know, and yeah. But then just me saying that is probably going to have people like enraged at me. Right well, now. because that's, if that's, you cure these things that it can really, truly help, you're not power slamming prescription drugs anymore. And then a lot of people are losing money. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, I honestly, it's sad, but I think that there's so much behind just, it's a dollar amount yeah. that will not be there. So for those who, you know, can't <laughs> do that, um, you know, we, we talk a lot about you need brotherhood. Um, and I think that that term has lost a lot of its meaning. Um, you know, you say that, and I think people just think like a sports team or something, um, or they only think the military. And I think the way that most of human life has existed on this planet was 
I mean, you knew your neighbors intimately, right? Like yes. whether you lived in mud huts or houses or whatever, like we used to be in very close proximity to each other often. And we don't do that anymore in this modern age where we're looking at phones. And I, I mean, outside of music, do you, have you built those kind of connections for you that where like when you're having a bad day, you call them up and like, Hey man, or um, yeah, they call you, you know? Totally. Yeah. I think, I think like community or brotherhood or whatever you call it is, is extremely, extremely important. Um, yeah, I think there's just, just something that's built into us where we're supposed to be connected to other people. Um, I love that music does that, but even at a, a deeper level, like you're saying, there's people that you know you can trust, you know, kind of no matter what. Uh, I think having that, and I, I don't know if, if maybe, if, you know, like we're talking about social media, like if it's, starting to confuse people where like, you know, my thousands of whatever followers means that I have community, but like how many of those people can you call and say, you know, you're doing all right today or I'm not doing all right today or, or just whatever it is. Um, like, you know, all their kids names and you go over to the house for dinner and like, there's probably very, very few. And I think it's sadly getting less and less as we get more yeah. of this, you know, network or community as we call it online but I, I really think it's it's super important yeah i always encourage anybody when you're thinking of one of your friends regardless of what it's for just reach out to them say hey look let's think about you today yeah uh how are you doing you know check in on them and i think that's the the number one advice i would give to building connection because a lot of people are just connected with people to ask or want for something. Yeah. And it's really nice to have somebody that genuinely just wants to talk to you and wants yeah. to check in on you. So yeah, connection, super important. And, you know, what, what better way to learn that than it being modeled? And, you know, you spoke about your dad uh, being a very present, very good father to you. And so one of the things I wanted to ask you about your father was what's something that your dad passed down to you uh, that you want to pass down to your sons? or to your kids? Um, I think patience. He like, he really was like just this endless well of patience. <laughs> it's crazy. I, like I said, it just flew in today. I picked him up at the airport and he's like with my now five month old and he's like 67 or whatever, but he's just like for as long as he's enjoying it, like just hovering him and around on this little tiny, car like playing looking in reflection of the stone playing with a ball just like forever like he was doing it the whole time like the all evening long kind of thing um and not just that like patience and and play and being present and like but patience for you know the attitude that your child will inevitably give you like the the in the discipline and and all of that stuff i think a lot of that eventually sunk in um, and I, yeah, I really, you know, it was never like where he, I can't remember even a single time. I don't think where it was like, now I had like old school, some hard discipline sometimes, but it was ne like, sure. I, I never felt like, you know, my, like he was legitimately like mad at me you know what i mean or right. angry at me right the like, discipline wasn't out of anger right gotta do this <laughs> you know what i yeah. mean um and i and i've i've tried to do that my entire life since my boys were young like i'm just like if a little child makes you angry 
they're not the ones that need to work on something in my opinion. Yes. It's, you know, and lots of parents get it. You get frustrated and you get stuff like, but it just means look at yourself. Like it's not, you know, this little, whatever you want to call them is making me angry. Like, no, you're getting angry. And a small child who has not learned any emotional control is the one doing it. So I think that like the adult, the parent is the one who needs to be like, okay, maybe I have some work to do in order to be able to pass on the way we want to run our family and the discipline and the, the teamwork and everything without, you know, getting my own blood boiling. So outside yeah. of patience, what is one piece of advice that you would give uh, fellow fathers and, and your kids um, moving forward? Let them ask as many questions as they want. Um, one rule I've done, I think, almost my whole life, and I told my kids once they were old enough, if I ever tell you because I said so, you're allowed to tell me that I'm not allowed to say that. <laughs> you know, so they're like, why do I have to do this? Well, what's the point of that? Why? Why? My daughter will do it like 10 deep. Like, why, 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 why? But like, I just, I really think they learn from our answers and they're not just randomly asking shit. They're really taking in a whole world of a million different inputs, billions. Like just, there's, there's so much coming at them. And they're, I, I feel like they learn a lot through just even discipline. Like, why, why, why are you making me do this? Why are you making me do that? It, it always leads, to, if they still have a why, then there's still some conversation that needs to be had or some guidance that needs to be passed on. So, yeah, yeah the, they're likely not questioning your authority. They're trying to understand. Yeah. You know, it's well, a big and difference. even that, like, why do I have to listen to you? Think about that. If you're a father, why do they? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah. Because I said so? Well, who cares? What's the, what's the actual, why do I have to listen to you? Well, yeah. maybe I have a life experience. Then maybe they're going to ask, have you ever done? Like, it's just, I, I think it, there sh it shouldn't be cut off. You know? Yeah. You can calmly explain, you know, you pick, pick a scenario, right? But totally. Well, I, I've done this for however many years yeah. I've, you know, been an adult. So that, that is why you're going to listen to me this time. Yeah. I'm not angry. Yeah. But I, you need to trust me on this one that I have your best interest in mind. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we, they trust us enough to come to us over everybody else. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that us dads have to realize is that they trust us and we have to be the ones that make sure to follow through with that privilege. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's a tough thing sometimes because, you know, our patients are, we're tired or, you know, there's something, but we have to show up either, either way. So, yeah, that's great, man. Great answer. Yeah. That's an awesome answer. So, um, one of the questions we ask every dad is, um, excuse <clears throat> me. What is a favorite memory or just a story since you've become a dad that just really resonates with you? Oh, man, there's a million. Like each kid now has had something like it was pretty cool to see even just a month ago. Both of my sons come here after putting so much time into playing guitar. And we're like, we're jamming together. And it doesn't sound horrible. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, damn, like they're at home putting in the work and we'll do FaceTime lessons and stuff sometimes, but it's such a cool memory that like that'll, that'll stay with me. Like we're jamming this song, literally one that I thought was too difficult for me to learn. And I play music every day. So my son did like this tutorial or whatever on TikTok. And he's like, I learned this. I was like, I love that song. And I was like, can you teach it to me? And then he was excited to teach it to me. And then we, we jammed it all. That was 
super cool. Um, with the little ones now, it it's like every day I'm like stacking new little moments, and a lot of it is when I'm on the ground, they're level and are just you know playing or wrestling or whatever, and they're laughter, and I just I come back to it so many times in a day as I don't know, almost like it's kind of the whole point of meditation to me is to do that, you know? So when you can have a bigger and bigger and bigger chunk of your day, be precisely in the stuff that you're doing. And for me, my priorities are, are like my family and that time and then music. So both of them really do it for me. But in terms of memories, I'm just like, it feels like I'm stacking a new one on top every day with them, just in these little precious moments that I see in such a, like a high definition way, almost. I love yeah, it. You, uh, you uh, learn to appreciate the small things, especially in your totally second go around. Totally. You know, so, I, I love to hear that about your sons because I play guitar. Um, always have my whole life. Music's always been an outlet for me, and I'm hoping as my daughter gets a little bit older here, we we can start doing that together. That'd be like that's always been like my secret dream. Yeah, like, totally. She wants to play guitar too. <laughs> I you know. know. Just something so or just like shredding the gnar, let's go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's that's so beautiful, man. Uh Dallas, what's the best place for people to to follow you, find you, listen to your music? Uh my website is dallasalexander.ca. Because I'm Canadian. Um that has links to everything. Social media, Instagram is I am Dallas Alexander, and that's probably where I post the most most. But just Dallas Alexander, Dallas Alexander music, and you'll you'll find me somewhere. And you're on Spotify, all that yeah, stuff, Spotify right? and Apple Music and YouTube and anywhere you listen to your music. I was listening on Spotify today. Yeah. Oh, yeah, nice. So your your first full album was Adios Amigo, right? And then, yeah, uh, so that was a live album recorded at a yeah. bar that was close to here. And honestly, I put that out because when I was booking shows, I was having a hard time because people were like, "Do you have music out?" I'm like, no, I yeah. don't. You're like, eh. So I was like, we've got to record something. So I recorded a bunch of original songs that played at a, at a, like a showcase here. And that was, ended up being my first album out. And now the one I'm, well, it's out on vinyl available on my website, but there's a couple singles now out on Spotify and Apple from it. And I like yeah. kind of the progression in, in sound and quality and all this stuff. And once it's fully out, I'll probably eventually take down that first album. <laughs> Oh really? Yeah. No, I love it, man. I, I love heard it. that you said that. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, maybe I'll redo something. I love something the live feel, man. That's what I was telling you. You know, beforehand, like my brother and I literally just listened to it on repeat, sitting outside this this past summer, just enjoying the evening. And uh, it's because we don't get that often anymore. You know, everything is so it's so computerized. Yeah, it, it doesn't sound real anymore, almost. Yeah, right? and maybe that's because I played music my whole life, and I kind of have the ear for it. But I think it's the recording. I love kind of just process too feel. like the recording process has become such a norm to auto-tune your voice and pitch correct this and that and this has to be exactly perfect and on my record i was like i forbid the studio from doing that and it almost blew it. some heads off they're like i love that <laughs> they're like wait what do you mean everybody does that i was like i don't care i'm like i'll sing the song a million times until we think it sounds good but like you're not touching my voice with pitch correction or auto-tune yeah. Even if you think no one's going to be able to notice. I, that's awesome. See, for me personally, I that that's what I have really enjoyed about your music that's, you know, available online is um, you can tell, right? It, it's not, it's not over refined and it's just you and, and the bands you're playing with. And um, 
I, I love that. Yeah, it's I mean, just people are like, CS lies. Like, what the, yeah. how am I going to hide? I mean, I guess just about about to say, you, lied anyway. you can tell the guys that yeah. uh, do that, like Chris Stapleton <laughs> yeah. and Luke Combs and Thomas yeah. Rhett and some of these other guys. When you go to a concert, you're like, okay, this sounds exactly the same. But then there's others yeah. who are like, uh, what? <laughs> yeah, that was weird. Or if they're like some kind of raw acoustic setting, you're like, oh my God. Because you, you can use auto-tune live now anyway, so... <laughs> Yeah, they've solved it. And last thing about your music, uh, you know, you a lot of your songs, it seems like you've really written from the heart on, um, you know, they're not just a quick song to make a buck type of thing. Um, yeah. You know, like I, I'm just looking at some of the titles right now, you know, Neon Lights, that's one of my favorites. Um, and then To a Hero, you know, you got some really good songs that you can tell you took a lot of time. Um, I connect with personally a lot. So for those listening, Highly recommend. It's great stuff. Well, thanks. If you even remotely like country, you will definitely like Dallas's music. It's uh, it's authentic country inspired music. It's not the pop stuff you hear on the radio, <laughs> Florida Georgia Line and stuff. But <clears throat> how to get that out? Yeah. Anyway, so Dallas, any last words you want to leave with the audience or anything? No, just thanks for having the chat. I, I appreciate this and like covering these topics. I think is very important, and I'm glad you guys are doing it. We need good present fathers out there <laughs> that's right especially that's right. in this day and age right yes we do dallas thank you so much for your time man thanks for sharing your story being vulnerable with us and uh i anxiously await the release of the full next album and uh, we wish you the very best all right thanks a lot all right we'll see you in the next episode see you guys thanks for tuning in to this episode of the present fathers podcast Make sure that you subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Spotify to catch all of our amazing episodes. We will see you in the next one.